Are you familiar with the term slacker? You familiar with that term? According to the Webster's Dictionary, a slacker is a person who avoids or attempts to avoid work or obligation or responsibility. A slacker is a minimal contributor. Do you know one? If you have trouble recognizing a slacker, I have a few quotes from some accomplished slackers, some slacker philosophy, you might say. Never put off until tomorrow what can be put off until the day after tomorrow. How about this one? Do it really bad the first time, and no one will ever think of asking you again. Or practice makes perfect, but no one's perfect, so why practice? It's a slacker's mentality. Or I'm waiting for my ship to come in. I just haven't wandered down to the docks to meet it. Or finally, the sooner you fall behind, the more time you have to get caught up. A quick internet search reveals the following websites. Slacker's Domain, Church of the Slacker, the World Nap Organization. Some of you are going to look that up this afternoon. I know that. There's even a Slacker's Olympics, believe it or not. The Slacker competes in channel surfing, long and short programs, backseat driving, freestyle sleeping, sheep counting, lounging, all sports that interest the Slacker. I certainly hope you are not a slacker. But here's what's really appalling. Peter says that there will be skeptics and scoffers in the last days who will criticize God for being a slacker. Can you believe it? Can you believe such audacity? Our faithful God, a slacker? Yet Peter says they'll accuse God of not keeping his promises. And in chapter 3, Peter proves to us otherwise. He begins in verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Once an old man told his teenage grandson, he said, Sonny, the key to success in life is how much you learn after you know it all. Realize we can know truths without really knowing those truths. A truth can be grasped academically, but never put into practice, never really applied to our living. Or we can know a truth and yet forget that truth. And this is why Peter wants his readers to be mindful, to remember those truths that they've been taught. The words that were spoken by the prophets and by the apostles need to always be fresh on their minds. He continues in verse 3. He says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? Now, Peter says that in the last days, scoffers will come. People will question the promise of the Lord's coming. In a December 2022 poll, Pew Research found that only 39% of Americans today believe that we're living in the end times. That's 58% who said we're not, that we have plenty of time. 
And only 10%, that's one out of every 10 Americans, believe that Jesus Christ will return to earth in their lifetime. Only one out of 10. A shocking 22% of Christians, no less, Christians, don't even believe that Jesus will return despite the fact that he said he would. The scoffers that Peter warned us of have come. Today, people will squawk. You Christians keep talking about the last days, the second coming of Jesus. You're like a broken record. You claim God will judge the earth. Well, where is he? I do as I please, and I'm not hurting. My life is okay. I'm not worried. If God hasn't come back by now, I'm not holding my breath. How many times have you heard that? Well, some folks have concluded that God doesn't exist. Other folks assume that God doesn't care. But Peter says... You need to think again. For there are truths that the scoffer has forgotten. Realities that he has willingly ignored. Three realities he's going to talk about. First, people forget that God has judged the world before. Don't forget that. God has judged the world before. There's evidence of it. Second, he says that these scoffers should realize that if God judged the world before, He can do it again. And third, they need to realize that with God, time is relative. There are three, these are three truths that the scoffer has conveniently neglected. That God has judged the world before, that He can do it again, and that time is relative to God. Now here's the first false conclusion that they draw, verse 4. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The scoffers assume that world history progresses without interruption. That our planet was shaped in the past only by those influences that are shaping it today. Scientists use a huge 10-gallon term for this idea. They call it uniformitarianism. That over millions and millions of years, the earth's geology has resulted from the uniform processes and laws that are currently working in nature presently. The theory of uniformitarianism was first proposed by Charles Lyell, an English geologist in the 1800s. Lyell's ideas became the foundation for Darwinian evolution. And it has still remained the dominant view among evolutionists today. Last year, Kathy and I, we got to fulfill a bucket list experience. We had fun. I was invited to speak at a conference in Arizona, and after the conference, we went to the Grand Canyon, and we took one of those helicopter rides over the canyon. It was amazing. And yet a uniformitarian would stand at the edge of that Grand Canyon, look those five miles downward at that slender blue thread called the Colorado River, snaking its way through the canyon. And then they would claim that it was that tiny river that cut out that gigantic canyon. A uniformitarian would keep a straight face and tell you that the Grand Canyon was formed the same way that the gullies are formed in your backyard, by simple erosion. I'm sorry, but I'm just not that gullyable. You know, it's interesting that the atheistic and the anti-biblical idea of uniformitarianism was actually predicted by Peter 2,000 years ago. 
And it's been the prevailing philosophy in American intellectual circles for the last 100 years. Peter says that this erroneous view is a sign of the end times. When humanity forgets that the earth was judged previously, it proves it's ripe for God's judgment again. He writes in verse 5, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. What today's scoffers willfully forget is the record of Genesis chapter 6 through 9, the global deluge of Noah's day. The flood was God's judgment on the ancient world. The world that then existed perished. Which reminds me of Noah's top ten statements. Have you heard these top ten statements? These are the top ten statements Noah made on the ark. Number ten, strange, we haven't seen another boat for weeks. Number nine, if I only brought along more rhino litter. Something you never think about until you need it. Number eight, I never want to sleep on a waterbed again. Number seven, fish for supper again. Number six, honey, please stop saying into each life a little rain must fall. Number five, does anyone have more drama me? Number four, where's my phone? I want to take a photo of that rainbow. Number three, how can I fish with just two worms? Number two, God, are you sure I don't need to keep the termites in a tin can? And the number one, the number one statement of Noah, Noah was seen years later slapping his neck like this and mumbling, I should have killed those lousy mosquitoes while I had a chance. Notice Peter's description here of the flood. He describes a world much different than today. He speaks of the earth standing out of water and in the water. Realize there are Bible scholars and geologists alike who hypothesize that at one time in the past, the earth was shrouded with an atmospheric vapor canopy. This vapor canopy kept out harmful radiation from the sun, which allowed the age of man to reach the triple digits that we find recorded in Genesis. It also produced a worldwide tropical climate with teeming fauna and lush foliage. Apparently, the world, or the flood, was not just 40 days and 40 nights of normal rain. No, the flooding came from the collapse of, this, of the earth's vapor canopy. Oceans, the ocean's subterranean pools even shot up in the cataclysm that occurred. Genesis 7 reads, All the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. Seismic eruptions spewed water onto the surface of the earth. The vapor canopy that shrouded the earth all collapsed. The flood was a deluge of incredible proportion. In fact, in verse 6 here, the word flooded is a translation of the Greek word kataklouzo, from which we get cataclysm. The global deluge of Noah's day was a cataclysmic event that totally altered our planet's ecosystem. In the post-flood world, aging factors dramatically decreased lifespans to what they are today. 
The relatively flat tropical paradise that existed before the flood was replaced by extremes in topography, mountains now and valleys and canyons, and, and harsher temperatures now all around the world. The enormous water runoff formed today's oceans. The earth became a harsher place. Humorous Will Rogers once said, Everybody is ignorant, only in different subjects. And today's rationalist has made himself ignorant of a global flood. For in addition to the biblical record, historical documentation abounds for the actuality of Noah's flood and the historicity of the event. A worldwide deluge is the most universally accepted event in all of human history. Every ancient culture has an account of this story. Not just the Hebrews, but the ancient Greeks and Orientals, even the American Indians, all have their traditions of a worldwide flood. Now, the stories all vary somewhat, but the central ingredients are similar. The entire earth is flooded with water. The animals are saved, and a family is chosen. Not only does history testify of a global flood, so does geology. God has left evidence of a worldwide deluge in the geological strata of Earth's crust. Uniformitarians claim that Earth's fossil-filled layers were laid down over long periods of time, but the evidence contradicts that belief. The strata show that all Earth's mountaintops were at some point in the past underwater. Sedimentary rock and marine fossils are found near the summits of many of our mountains. Even volcanoes show that they were formed underwater. All sedimentary rock, which is throughout the Earth's crust, was formed by the deposit of materials transported and laid down underwater. Just the basic information, the basic formation of a fossil flies in the face of uniformitarian notions. A bird doesn't fall to the ground and just become a fossil. Neither does a fish fall to the ocean floor and turn into a fossil. No, a dead carcass gets eaten by other animals, or it deteriorates and blows away in the wind, or it dissolves underwater. Fossils don't form as a result of natural processes over millions of years. No, an animal's fossilization requires rapid burial, intense pressure, immediate compaction, elements that occur under catastrophic circumstances. One evolutionist writes, many entire skeletons of duck-billed dinosaurs have been excavated in a swimming position with their head thrown back as if in death throes. What's a dinosaur doing in a swimming position? See, there are countless examples of non-aquatic fossils who died underwater. And the evolutionist lacks any explanation. The believer turns to Genesis chapter 6. Another amazing evidence for the flood are the 5,000 or so woolly mammoths which have been found frozen and buried in the ice of northern Siberia and Alaska. In several cases, undigested tropical vegetation has been found in the mouths of these woolly mammoths. Two questions arise from that. Where did they find the tropical plants in the Arctic? And then second... How did they die so suddenly before they had time to digest their food? No natural processes can account for their demise. They were the victims of a cataclysmic event, the flood in Noah's day. When Mount St. Helens erupted 
on May that in 1980, it provided scientists a unique opportunity to study geological changes that occurred under catastrophic conditions. Geologists found that certain geological formations that were previously thought to take thousands of years to form actually took shape in a few days following the explosion on Mount St. Helens. It all proves that a global flood is a far better explanation for the geological formation of planet Earth than our uniform processes over millions and millions of years. Make no mistake about it, God has judged this world before and there is plenty of evidence to prove it. And yet the scoffers are not forgetful of God's prior judgment because they have a bad memory or they're unaware of the evidence. No, when it comes to God's intervention and Noah's flood, scientists are deliberately ignorant. As Peter puts it, they are willfully, they willfully forget. For if you agree with the biblical record that God judged the earth for its wickedness, then you're conceding that there is an authority higher than you, that there is someone in your life that you must answer to. You're not your own God after all. Peter says scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. See, the problem is not logic, but lust. And if you admit that God judged the earth before, then you're agreeing that he can judge this earth again. And this is what Peter tells us will happen in verse 7. He says, But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Our physical world consists of trillions and trillions of atoms. And each atom contains a nucleus made up of positively charged protons and neutrally charged neutrons. And if you know your physics, you realize that according to Colum's law, like charges repel, while unlike charges attract. So how do the protons in every atom exist? How do they hold together? The physicists call it the atomic glue. But what is it? Scientists don't know, but the Bible is exact. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus is upholding all things by the word of his power. Here we're told the heavens and the earth are being reserved or preserved by the same word. And that word is Jesus he is the atomic glue that binds the positive charges in the nucleus of every atom. And the universe is being preserved for a day of reckoning. It's being reserved for a coming judgment. Verse 8 tells us, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Don't get frustrated that Jesus Christ ascended to heaven 2,000 years ago, and we haven't seen him since. No, Jesus is not marching to our drumbeat. He's not on our clock, trust me. To an eternal God, time is relative. God lives outside of time. He's not subject to time as we are. Peter tells us that to God, up against eternity, a thousand years is as 24 hours. It's no big deal. It was Albert Einstein that advanced the theory of relativity. He identified time as a physical property like light and energy. 
Einstein proved mathematically that the closer you get to the speed of light, the more time slows down. Let me put it this way. If we jumped on a light beam traveling out into space, we would sail past the moon in 1.25 seconds. That's how fast we'd be going. We would pass the sun in seven and a half minutes. On our light beam, we would pass the planet Neptune in 14 hours. But it would take us 100,000 years to leave our galaxy, the Milky Way. And you wouldn't make it to the next galaxy, the Andromeda, for another 1.5 million years. Now let's say you rode that light beam to the next galaxy back. You would be gone from Earth 3 million years. But based on Einstein's theory, you would only be a few hours older. Only just a few hours older. Why? Because time is relative to the speed of light. And God is light. So to God, time is a non-factor. Once a man, he read this verse and he prayed. He said, God, is it true that to you a thousand years is as one day? God replied, yes. He prayed again. He said, well, God, is it true to you then that a thousand dollars is like one penny? Again, God answered, yes. So the fellow asked, he said, well, then, God, can I have a penny? God said, sure, just a second. (laughs) Peter concludes in verse 9. God is no slacker. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Did you hear about the Martians who visited earth? Did you hear about this? No? Well, they flew their saucers right into the Vatican. They wanted to talk to the Pope. Well, the Pope asked them, he said, uh, do you guys know a person named Jesus Christ? The Martian said, sure we do. We love Jesus. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. He's fantastic. He visits our planet once a year just to hang out. Well, the Pope didn't quite understand. He said, well, he said, this is strange. He said, Jesus came to our planet just once, and he hasn't returned for 2,000 years. The Martians replied, they said, well, He must not like your chocolates. Again, the Pope didn't get it. What do chocolates have to do with anything? Well, the Martians replied. They said, well, when Jesus visits us, we roll out the red carpet, man. We give him praise. We celebrate his coming. We even give him a box of chocolates. By the way, what did you guys give him? This planet crucified Jesus. That's what we gave him. And yet that's not why he hasn't returned. It's not. As a matter of fact, rather than hold a grudge against us, his motivation is just the opposite. He's been long-suffering. He's been patient toward us. He has been giving people on this planet every possibility to repent of their sin and surrender their lives to his rule. The Lord's delay... Is because of the Lord's love. He wants us to repent. You know what repentance is, I hope. Repentance is the desire to start over. 
See, it's not within our power to change ourselves and to begin again. We need God to work a miracle in our hearts. But when we repent, we provide him the desire to start over. That's your job. You provide him that desire. You ask him to do it. And from that point onward, God takes over. Repentance is the key that opens the door for God to begin his work in your life, the work of saving and healing and helping you. You see, the reason Jesus doesn't loosen his grip and let go of this universe and let it go up in smoke is the same reason he gripped onto that cross and allowed them to drive the nails into his hands. It's because he loves people. And he holds out hope that at some point they'll humble themselves and they'll turn from their sin and they'll ask him to begin a new work in them. Two kids were admiring a rainbow one day when one little girl, she stuck her head between her legs and she looked at it upside down. She told her friend, she said, look at a rainbow this way and you can see God smile. Since God's first judgment, the rainbow has been a symbol of his mercy. He wants to forgive us. He wants to start over with each of us. And I love Jesus. I'm glad he's given me that opportunity. I long to see his face one day. Living in this wicked world grieves us. And we often pray for Jesus to come quickly. But let's admit, if we had gotten our way, if Jesus had returned those few years ago when you were going through a hard time and you wanted him to, well, some of the people sitting around you today, they wouldn't be going with us. If Jesus had come five years ago, how many of you would be left out? God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And if waiting a few more moments means a few more souls can be saved and can be raptured, the wait will be worth it. Let's not despise the Lord's long sufferings. At Jesus' first coming, he came to save us, which is still his goal. But when he returns, he will come to judge us. And Peter tells us how that judgment will play out, verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The first time God judged this wicked world, he did so with water. But the second time, he will judge this earth with fire. Some people have read these phrases, great noise as the whistle of a missile. And fervent heat as the detonation of a nuclear warhead. But I believe that when God judges the world, it will be an act of his own hand. As we mentioned earlier in verse 7, the universe is being preserved by Jesus. Everything is being held together by him. Peter says, reserved for fire. And yet one day, Jesus is going to loosen his atomic grip on the physical universe. He's going to let go of the nucleus of every, every nucleus of every atom. He's going to let go. And those protons are going to repel and everything's going to explode and this universe is going to incinerate. You've heard the expression, it's all going to burn? Well, it is. And in light of that day, we need to do two things. 
he has told us to repent. And second, he tells us to prepare. Notice verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Certainly not a materialistic person. I mean, the physical world is about to dissolve. We need to live for the world beyond. Once there was a tourist. He was traveling in Israel when he had the opportunity to visit a famous rabbi. To the tourist's amazement, he entered the rabbi's home, and all he saw was a small table, a little lamp, and a cot. He asked, he said, Rabbi, where's your furniture? The rabbi replied, where's yours? He replied, my furniture? But I'm just a guest. And that's when the wise rabbi replied, so am I. And we all are. We all are just guests. Always remember, this world is not our home. The world that we live in is headed for judgment. We are headed for heaven. This world is destined for a meltdown. We're destined for glory. This world will be dissolved. We'll experience ultimate fulfillment. This world will be judged for its evil. We'll be rewarded for those good things that we do. Jesus is coming again to judge this wicked world, and we need to prepare ourselves to meet him. You and I need to be wholly devoted to Jesus. We should be, he says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. We should live looking for Jesus. Peter, Peter even says that we can hasten the Lord's return. What a provocative thought that you and I can speed up the Lord's return. Once we were waiting uh, for the church bus to return from one of the middle school retreats and a fellow father and I, we were standing there trying to guess how late the group would be. He had an interesting insight. He said, you know, we need to factor in that the driver is coming home because when you come home, you drive a little faster. It's true. Just that desire to get home hastens your arrival. And Peter says that we can hasten the Lord's return. But how can we do that? Well, Romans chapter 11 verse 25 tells us that in the end times, that the end times events won't begin until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Implied there in the fullness of the Gentiles is a set number will be saved. Apparently, the Lord is looking for the last person to get saved. And when that set number is reached, the father is going to say to his son, go get him. That means every person that we lead to Jesus gets this one person closer to his return. Think of it. The last sinner to be saved might be the guy working at your job site that you've been talking to. Or the girl in your office cubicle you've been witnessing to. Or the student in your classroom that you've taken an interest in and you're trying to build a relationship with. Thus, the more we share our faith, we can speed up or we can hasten Jesus' return. He says in verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
The world that we live in still bears the curse of sin. It's subject to randomness and to decay. But one day, the universe will melt with a fervent heat, and God will usher in a new heaven and a new earth, and an awful end will lead to a glorious beginning. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Notice Peter's encouragement to be diligent. Here's a more common word for us instead of diligent. Think sports. Think of the term hustle. It's the same word. You know, we all understand and we admire hustle when we see it. You know, the player who hustles, he gives it everything he's got on every play. He leaves it all on the field. If you're a Bulldog fan, think Brock Bowers. The kid's nonstop. He's all about hustle. Former ex-Steelers coach Chuck Noll once said, good things happen to those who hustle. And this is how last days believers remain in Christ. We need to add a little hustle to our holiness, a little hustle to our faith. Refuse to get sidetracked. Stay on course. Peter exhorted us back in chapter 1, verse 5, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Add to your faith those supplements that cause it to grow stronger. Add some hustle to your holiness. And then he says, and considering that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Again, God is no slacker. He waits for men and women to be saved because He passionately loves them, so much so that He sent His only Son to die in their place for the forgiveness of their sins. Think about it. If our Lord Jesus came back today, someone that you loved might be left behind. You and I can wait a little longer for a few more souls to be saved. And then Peter continues, As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. He says that Paul has agreed with his conclusions. As also in all his epistles, Paul's epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. That's a little humorous. Peter says, you know that Paul? He's a tough guy to understand. And if you've ever read Romans chapters 9 through 11, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, or 1 Corinthians chapter 11, some of Paul's mind-grinding theology, you might conclude that he's difficult to understand as well. If so, don't worry, you're in good company. Peter thought, also thought that he was sometimes tough to understand. Apparently, from Peter's point of view, Paul was a bit complicated. And here Peter accuses Paul of being uh, hard to understand and therefore prone to be misinterpreted. He says even today there are untaught and unstable people who twist Paul's writings. This word translated twist means to wrench or to torture. A vivid description of what false teachers do to the Scripture. In other words, they'll torture the text 
They'll literally put it on the rack until it yields the interpretation they're trying to get out of it. The false teacher's goal is not to understand what the Bible actually is saying, but to make it say what they want it to say. Notice, too, at the end of Peter's comments here about Paul, he equates Paul's writings, his letters to the churches, to the other books of the Bible. He says, as they do also in the rest of the Scriptures. And this is an important point here. First of all, it's proof that Peter had a sense of what he and the other apostles were writing when they put down their words on paper and created the sacred scriptures. He, he, was, he was conscious of the fact that this was inspired literature that he was writing here and that this should be added to the Hebrew Bible. And second, that very early history in the church that the first church had a sense of what they were doing in terms of choosing which books were in and which books were out. Thus, he says here that Paul's books need to be included with the rest of the Scripture. They were forming the sacred canon of Scripture even in Peter's day here. Apparently, Peter had no doubt that Paul, Paul's writings should be considered equally inspired, as Peter puts it, as they do also in the rest of the Scriptures. And then he says in verse 17, you therefore, beloved, notice four times here in chapter 3, Peter has referred to his readers as his beloved, a term of endearment. Peter loved these people. You know, I would imagine that Peter knew this was the last chapter of the last letter that he would be writing to the church. He knows that soon he will be led away to the site of his own crucifixion. Tradition tells us that Peter requested to be crucified upside down because he was unworthy to be crucified as his Lord had been. Perhaps Peter now hears the Roman guards coming down the stairs. Maybe he hears the executioner preparing his hammer and nails. Maybe they've already summoned him and he's asked the officials if he can just finish this letter that he started. Maybe it didn't happen that way, but maybe it did. And if so, Peter's getting a little teary-eyed here, not because he's leaving. This is his graduation day. He's going to be reunited with his master. Peter's headed to glory, but he is leaving behind those that he loves and those that he cares about, people who are beloved to Peter. And so he sums up his feelings for them in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. His final words, stay steadfast, persevere, don't fall away or be led astray, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice here, Peter's counsel to the church is to have both a good defense and a good offense. Beware of falling into error. There are smooth talkers out there who want to wrench and twist the truth and torture it. Beware of the error of the wicked. But as you do, continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Seek Jesus in season and out of season, in the good times and in the bad times. See, you can build and build and build, but if you don't protect what's been built, Satan can slip in and he can lead it to ruin. Or you can always be fighting 
You can always be attacking an enemy. You can always be beating the stuffing out of your straw man and never really build anything worth protecting. You recall when Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem? He carried a sword in one hand and he carried a shovel in the other hand. I love that. He built and he battled. And that's how a Christian grows. That's how you're going to grow in your faith. You need to guard yourself against deception. And you need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. You need to beware and you need to be growing. Are you both? And then Peter closes his letter, verse 18, to him, that is to our Lord Jesus, be the glory both now and forever. Amen. May you and I decrease as Jesus increases.